So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Hebrews 10. Believe it or not, we are in Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm excited about this passage of Scripture. I hope you are. And I want to begin with a question. I didn't really plan on asking this or or talking about this, but... um, When you think about the Lord, you think about God, how majestic He is and how magnificent His works are, and how high and lofty His wisdom is, just just the thought of trying to comprehend His motivations is staggering, or should be. If you're married or you have a close friend, you know that it's often difficult, even with the people you know most, to know exactly what they're thinking. And we're all just human. We all share so many different experiences. It's difficult to know exactly what another person who has so many of the same experiences and limitations that you have, to know what it is they're thinking and why they're thinking it, what their motives are, what they really want out of something. And so the idea of what, what is actually going on at the deepest level in God's heart is, it should be staggering. But in the Word, He tells us. And if we're looking closely enough, we can make out what it is is at the heart of God. Now read verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things that have come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So if you remember, we're in the middle of the author's argument. I believe that chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, form the main thrust of the book of Hebrews. That's his main point. That is the thesis statement, if you will or the explanation of his thesis statement that he gives us in chapter 1. 
And last week, we were, I, I believe that the rest of chapter 9, from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, are answering questions about that section. One of the questions that we asked is this. In, and, and here's the setup for the question. In verses 11 through 14 of chapter 9, we see a contrast between the Old Testament sacrifices and the sacrifice of Christ's own self. So the question, I think, which is fair to ask and that the text answers is, what was the purpose of the earthly tent and the blood of bulls and goats? Right? What's the point of a shadow if the reality is coming later? And here's the answer, I think, that the text gives us in verses 18 through 23. The copies given to the people through Moses were a dark, sharp, glorious, revealing shadow of the better things that have now come in Jesus. And these verses, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 10, are what I leaned on to get that answer. Today the author explains more of that contrast between the dark shadow of the law and the bright reality of Christ. And here we'll pick it up in, obviously, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things that have come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So here's a summary of what I think he's saying. To say it in, in different terminology to help us understand it, this is how I would rephrase it, maybe, to, to give us kind of to to agitate our minds enough to know what he's actually saying. Because the law and all of its sacrifices contained only a preview or a shadow of all the good things that have come in Christ, which is the real thing, then those shadows were never going to permanently fix anything. So there are a few implications of this, and I think this flows directly from the text. Here are a few things, or at least one thing, that the law cannot do based on this verse. It cannot make us perfect. Back in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, the author says, The law made nothing perfect. Here's the point. This should be staggering. This should be amazing to you if you understand what the law was and and how it came and the glory of the revealing of the law through Moses, even if kept perfectly, the law won't make you perfect. That might be a startling statement to you, but it is the truth. Our problem is not only that we can't keep God's law perfectly, it's that even if we could, our effort and our striving to keep it perfectly wouldn't perfect us. Why? Why would it not perfect us? God's not interested in mere adherence to rules. He's not interested in cold, rigid obedience. The law makes matters worse, even, because it arouses the flesh When the law comes, sin comes alive and we die, Paul says. And I I want to draw attention to the the last two words of verse 1. 
those who draw near. This, this carries a flavor of uh, not just it can't purify the one who is trying to be purified through the law. It can't even purify the priests. So think about it. This, this, we've seen this before in Hebrews. This idea of drawing near, is it carries the flavor of drawing near in temple service. So he's even saying that these sacrifices of purification won't even purify the priest who's approaching to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So in contrast of what the law cannot do, what can Christ do? I think this is implied, but it is, it is strongly implied. If the law is lacking because it cannot make you perfect, then what Christ does and what Christ brings can make you perfect. How? How can Christ make us perfect? And again, this should seem to you, and it does seem to me, a startling claim. How can Christ make us perfect? And not just a figure of speech. This might bring to your mind the old statement, well, nobody's perfect. No one's perfect. And we all stumble and fall. Even the Bible itself says we all stumble in many ways. So what what is the author claiming here? That the old covenant couldn't make people perfect. So the better things that have come, Jesus is going to make us perfect and makes us perfect. What is he saying and how can he do this? And the author answers that question in the end. And we'll get to all of our questions being answered. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here's a summary for you of what he's saying. If the sacrifices of the law could perfect the worshiper, they would have stopped. But they didn't. Quite the opposite. They had to be done every year. And because of that, it reminded the people of the problem of sin and the personal uncleanliness because of sin every time. And this should have been obvious to everyone because it's obvious that the blood of bulls and goats can't deal with human sin. So a few implications of what the law cannot do. The law cannot be a permanent solution. Paul calls it a guardian or a tutor. It's, it's a, symbolized for the author of Hebrews in the idea that, that the law brought a tent, which is a temporary dwelling place. It's, it's screaming from the pages, and even as God gives it down from Mount Sinai that this is a temporary solution, it was never meant to be a permanent solution. It is earthly. Second implication is that it cannot take away sins because it has to be done every year, and it's the blood of bulls and goats that can't deal with sins. It can't take them away at all. The old saints under the old covenant would have known this. David himself reflects on this in Psalm 40, which we're going to see here in a minute, and Psalm 51, and in many other places. The idea is over and over that a a passive, uh, uninvolved, disinterested animal, his blood being shed, can't really have anything to do with my sin. 
They can't really. Thirdly, the law cannot remove the remembrance of sins. So it says that since the people had to come together every year and offer sacrifices for sins, it's reminding the people of the problem of sin. And perhaps even creating a further gulf between God and the people because it's arousing the flesh and we're reminded that the problem of sin still exists and we might be drawn further away from our God. Because sin stands between us. And we're reminded every time we come together to do this Day of Atonement thing that the problem of sin is still there. It hasn't been dealt with. So what can Christ do? If the law can't do that, what can Christ do? He can do all these things. He is the permanent solution. And he can actually take away sins. And Christ can put an end to the remembrance of sins. How? How can Christ do this? How does Christ's single sacrifice accomplish all this? Again, we'll see this at the end. Verse 5, Consequently, when Christ comes into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is from the Greek translation of Psalm 40. And there are a few differences. The only one that's significant is that in the, if you go back to Psalm 40 in your, your Bibles that you have with you, you'll see that it does not say a body you have prepared. It says you have given me an ear, an open ear. And the idea I think that is being carried here is that an open ear to obey God is the same idea of being given a body that would obey God. It's kind of the same idea. Other than that difference, the meaning is very straightforward. Command, or God's commands in the law, and obedience to that command is not God's delight when it comes to dealing with sin. I mean, just just look at the, the explicit flavor of this text. You have taken no pleasure in these things. No delight, no pleasure. And these are the things that God commanded. So what the law cannot do, we'll see this again down below, obedience to the law alone cannot bring God delight. And it cannot bring God pleasure. This is massive and it's relationally significant. If you, again, if you have a close friend or you're married or you've got family, you're trying to please them. A lot of us have a a difficult or or complex relationship with our parents. We try to please them in the way that that is consistent with who we are, but in, in some way still honors them. So we understand this, that we we try to please those that we love. And and God says, if you want to please me, if you want to bring me delight, it's not going to be through the law, even though I commanded it. And so if you desire to please God, it should be an important question for you. If, If it's not through the law, then how am I to please God? How am I going to do that if it can't be through obedience to what he said?
By implication, also, neither can the law fulfill the will of God. Notice that interplay. No delight, no pleasure, so I have come to do your will. So what can Christ do? We've seen what the law cannot do, but Christ, offering himself for sins, can please and delight God. How? How can Christ do that? And here we begin to get the answer. The will of God being fulfilled in the obedience of Christ. He says, you have taken no pleasure. And then he says, I've come to do your will. So that which fulfills God's will is what pleases him. So how is that an answer? And here's, here's the question, Let me just to rephrase and reset. How can Christ both please God and bring him delight and fulfill his will? And the answer is he's just going to do God's will. For many, that's a non-answer. If someone were to say to you, how, how is it that salvation works? How is it that this is happening? And how is it that God organized it this way and desired to save us? through Christ, and we were to say, that's God's will. That, that, that wouldn't be an answer for some. They wouldn't accept it. It's just God's will. But he says, in the scroll of the book, this carries a sense of a deeper, more a prior commitment of God, a, a, reaching back into eternity past even. It, 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 it has something more to it than just what God wants. There's this deep, committed, resolute will that God has that Jesus is fulfilling. And he explains it in the next verse. Verse 8. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. This verse is a very important reminder. He says, you've not desired, you've not taken pleasure in. These are offered according to the law, the very thing he commanded. And this is Psalm 40, so they already knew this. They would sing this when they gathered to the temple or to the different synagogues in later times. They would sing Psalm 40 and they would say, you have not taken delight or pleasure in burnt offerings. Yet they still missed it when Christ came. Maybe not fall into that same error. And that's not the only place in the Old Testament we can find that. To, to show you the significance of this, I, I want to I make the point by way of contrast. And I'll, I'll bring in a passage that hopefully we're all familiar with and is a more familiar verse. Romans 8, 3-4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And if you're not reading your Bible carefully, you might jump to explain Hebrews 10 away with Romans 8, but they're saying something completely different. You ever have a, a friend or an acquaintance who likes nothing more than finishing your sentences? 
and you're trying to say something really specific and they jump in and, and try to finish it. And it's, it's just hilarious when they get it really wrong and you're like, oh, actually, I was going to say the complete opposite. But if it's just slightly wrong, that's frustrating. And you got to spend like the next five minutes explaining how what you're saying is different from what they're saying. We need to not do that with the Bible. Okay, so when we read something that that makes us ask questions, don't just jump to the verses that are more familiar to explain it away and explain the tensions away. So there's no spirit flesh contrast here in Hebrews 10, which is the point of Romans 8. So he's saying that the law could not accomplish what God had set it forth to do in our hearts because of the flesh. The law, weakened by the flesh, could not do these things. So God has done in Christ what the law could not do because the law was weakened by the flesh. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying in chapter 10. It is absolutely true that the law was weakened by the flesh. Because as I said before, when you receive a command, and we're seeing this more and more in our second born, when you get a command, it arouses the desire to do what that command prohibits. Right? It happens a lot, and it might be just a second-born thing. But this is the nature of the law with us. When God says, thou shalt not, our flesh answers, oh, really? But that's not what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. He's pointing to a deeper problem. What is the deeper problem with the law? It is simply this. God does not really delight in these sacrifices at all. Even though they are offered according to the law. That's stunning. Here's an immediate application of that. We might ask and wonder, and really every religion tries to answer this. What is pleasing to God? What is the life that is pleasing to God? The legalist answer is to say works of the law. There are do's and don'ts, and you do the do's and don't do the don'ts, and that is the life that is pleasing to God. Then the wishy-washy or postmodern answer is to say it's just as you are. You're already pleasing to God. So don't worry about it. Just live your life. Be who you are. You're pleasing to God. Be happy. The Bible's answer to both of those solutions is no. Because of sin and because of the guilt of sin and because of the will of God. So what is pleasing to God? What fulfills His will perfectly? Verse 9. Then He added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. This will of God that Jesus came to do was and is more eternal, more resolute, and permanent. And it is rooted in the pleasure and delight of God more than anything in the law is. And in this statement, I have come to do your will. The author claims that since this will that Jesus came to do is in contrast with those sacrifices, Jesus does away with the first. And with the context, we should supply covenant. He does away with the first covenant. 
in order to establish the second covenant. There are a few really important implications of this. There are not two peoples of God. The second covenant could not be established if the first had not been done away with beforehand. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Next implication is that the first covenant, as our way of relating to God, very important clarification, as our way of relating to God is no longer valid. Yes, you should still read your Old Testament, and it is good to know God's commands and laws. And we see his character and his holiness and his moral will, and those are reiterated and and intensified in the new covenant. But we do not relate to God or draw near to him on the terms of the first covenant. Verse 10. And by that will, keep in mind, this is the will that Jesus came to do. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And here we finally get an answer to all the questions we've been accumulating along the way. And I'll restate them for you. Here are the questions that we've been asking. While the law cannot perfect the worshiper, Christ's offering of himself does. But how? That was our first question. Second question. While the law cannot be the permanent solution, Christ's offering of himself is. But how? While the law cannot take away sins, Christ offering himself does. But how? While the law cannot remove the remembrance of sins, Christ's offering of himself does. But how? And lastly, while the sacrifices of the law do not bring God delight or pleasure, Christ's offering of himself does. But how? The answer the author gives in verse 10 is simply this. Because it is God's will to sanctify his people through the offering of Christ's body. It was God's will to do this. God desired to do this for you and for me. Though we could and should in different settings give many other answers to how it is that Jesus' offering of himself does all those things that the law cannot do, I believe the author wants us to just bask in this reason. And I I really want you to feel the import of this and the emotional impact and life-changing significance of this. It offers you an immediate connection between your salvation and God himself. The question I asked at the beginning, to know the mind of God. This connection between God and your salvation, between your salvation and the majestic, unquestioned, deep, eternal, indissoluble will of God. He says, by that will... 
from before the foundation of the world, even when time itself was but a plan and had not yet been put into place, God had a resolved, resolute, irrevocable will to sanctify you, to make you holy through the offering of Jesus' own self on the cross. And sanctify here means something a little bit different than it does in Romans. This is another reason why you don't just jump and finish the author's sentences or answer questions from somewhere else. Sanctify in the book of Hebrews, as we've seen over and over, has the idea of cleanliness and qualification to approach the Holy of Holies. That you are now pure, Sanctified, made holy, qualified to minister with Christ in the heavenly places. So understand this. It was God's will from before the foundation of the world to bring you and me sinners through the offering of Christ's body on the cross to serve Him forever. Let me show you how helpful this is. Someone may ask you, let's say you're in an evangelistic setting, you're trying to explain things to kids. How does this salvation stuff work? How does it all work together? It seems pretty complicated. And each piece of this grand salvation of God deserves its own sermon series. And it's intimately complex They're all interrelated, but they seem very foolish and and, uh, even reprehensible to the natural person. We have a lot of terms and a lot of very important truths, and they're all just part of the plan. Justification, imputation, substitution, atonement. Redemption, blood sacrifice, Christ bearing our sins. Us, through faith, being crucified with Christ. Regeneration, purification, forgiveness, resurrection. Each of those deserves its own series. And so many more. And they're all essential concepts. And they're all essential components of our joy. But even behind each one of those. At the very back at the very back of the back, and at the very bottom of the bottom is God's free and sovereign will. It was His will to sanctify you. He desired to do so. He desired to make you and me holy through Christ to worship Him forever. Heaven is for the people of God, to be sure. But more importantly, and more practically for you and me, and how we think about being a Christian, heaven is first and foremost for God. And He will bring many sons to glory. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit, we are called. The deepest root of joy for the believer is this. What ultimately pleases God? Christ does. 
Christ in fulfilling the will of God to bring these many sons to glory through sanctifying them. That work of Christ is the only thing that has happened in all human history that is pleasing to the Lord in the most ultimate sense. And in him, being sanctified by him is the fulfillment of this deep, deep, free, sovereign will of God. So just a few points for application. We'll use our five questions as the outline for these applications. So here was our first one. Christ offering himself makes the worshiper, the one who draws near, perfect because God willed it from eternity past. And again, we can supply other answers to these. How is it that Christ's offering perfects the believer? We, we can answer that in other ways. But the way this text is saying is that it was God's will to do that. God is more committed to your perfection and holiness than you can comprehend. From before all time and for all time. That resolute will behind everything, that chief end of God as it relates to his people is to purify, sanctify, and make you holy for his glory and delight in the heavenly holy of holies right alongside Christ. So understand the nature of your relationship with him and the purpose of this life. If that is what God is doing for you, not just in some mystical sense in heaven, but he's actually making this happen in your life, that's why you're a Christian, that's why you're being brought near, is this resolute will from before all time to draw you into his presence, to be a worshiper, that changes how you view your trials and your blessings. Because he uses all of it to make ready for that day. And also understand that through faith in Christ's offering, because it was God's will that Christ offering himself would be the means for our perfection, that drawing near to God through faith in Christ is more pleasing to him than all the works of the law. Christ offering himself, this is number two, this is our second question rephrased as a statement. Christ offering himself is... The permanent solution. Because God willed it to be so from eternity past. There's no next step. There's no deeper communion with God except through faith in the crucified Savior. That's radically important. Even the Holy Spirit himself is sent to glorify Christ. This should redefine how you would define spiritual maturity. Biblically, spiritual maturity is always through and unto Christ. It will always be Christ. Not visions, voices, theological vantage points, even your own maturity and growth. It's Jesus and dependence on Him and knowing God through Him. And it's not like that is training wheels so that you can get onto something more mature. It is the end. Jesus is the final solution forever. Number three, Christ offering Himself takes away sins because God willed that it would do so 
from eternity past. This is the sticking point for many people when it comes to believing the message of Christianity. How can the death of someone who lived and died 2,000 years ago have any effect on me? And again, we could do another series on that, the idea of imputation and how faith is related to that and how that works in our lives in, in, in real time. But the simple answer here is this, because God willed that it would. This is something the accuser does not want you to know. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. So thankful that Travis and Kathleen and Andy led us in that song a few weeks ago. God wanted it to. And you don't, you don't necessarily have to go much further than that. But his will before all wills is that Christ's death would remove and take away your sins. And what your flesh does not want you to know is that it cost him his life. As the other song says, it was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And our bitter hearts don't want us to know this either. When we persist in unforgiveness towards others, we are claiming to have more of a right than God has to hold sin against another. Do you understand the blasphemy of that? That God has willed from eternity past that Christ's death would actually take away sins and that we think we can hold sin against another person. And and understand, this isn't the idea of penance that, that, that we somehow remove our sins through living purely. That's not the idea. That's not, that's not the gospel. That's, that's false religion. Because the death of Christ actually takes away sins, like in, in Him is the sufficiency to remove sin, then mere repentance and faith the, in the offering of Christ's own body is what removes sins. Number four, Christ offering himself removes the remembrance of sins because God willed that it would from eternity past. I'm calling on you this morning to do something very important. With the eyes of faith, the eyes of your heart, behold the power and fire and force and strength and might of the eternal God, the Almighty, the I Am, to absolutely obliterate even the remembrance of sin that stands between Him and His people. Does not the violence and horror of the cross underscore lit this? That that is the links that God went to to remove even the remembrance of sin that would stand as a hindrance between you and fellowship with your God? And 
And a very fair question you could ask is, well, then why doesn't it seem to work sometimes? We can feel the weight and guilt of sin. But the promise here is that God willed that it would remove the remembrance of sins, that he would purify our conscience so that we could draw near and with unveiled face worship him. The only way a believer can live under the shame and guilt of past sins is three ways. First, you haven't repented. Two, you've not sought forgiveness through faith in Christ, offering his own body. But maybe you've sought forgiveness through the old way. I'll do good things, I'll clean my act up, and that will restore fellowship with God. Or three, you're just listening to yourself and to the accuser. Understand the point. We are sanctified. We are made holy so that we can draw near and worship him with that unveiled face. So that there is nothing standing between us and God. Not even the remembrance of former sins. He breaks the power of canceled sin. Lastly, Christ offering himself brings God delight and pleasure because it was God's will that it would do so from eternity past. When the voice calls out from heaven, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. God desired and designed for all time that only one thing ever would truly bring him delight and pleasure. The humble obedience and the offering of his own son for the sins of the people. Then how can we please God? I mean, that's, that's the next question, is it? If this is the only thing that from all time pleases the Lord at the most ultimate and basic level, then how can we please God? And this is the point. It is through faith in Christ. This is why the author is going to say in chapter 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that which doesn't proceed from faith, Paul says, is sin. So two ways this final point works itself out in our lives. I'll just give these two to you and we'll be done. The first way that this works out is transforming the way we see good works. It can be the exact same thing on the outside. But you can ask the question, is this from faith in Christ? Is the motive for this good deed faith in Christ and belief in him and trust in him and entrusting myself to him? Or is it trying to please God on our own? The old way. Let's use the example of coming to church. Is your desire in, in coming and gathering to check some box or fill some obligation or to do anything else other than I want more of Christ. I want to gain him even in the fellowship with my brothers and sisters and know more of him. That's through faith. Whereas anything else ultimately falls down and does not proceed from faith. 
even the desire to obey God. If we mean something else, then do the things that help me gain Christ and be like him. Ultimately, do not please him. This was the Pharisees' error. And the second way this works itself out in our lives is how we deal with sin. I want you to listen very carefully. The reason why some of you may not have any victory over sin is because you're trying to defeat sin the wrong way. It would be like bringing a tank or an aircraft carrier to defeat brain cancer. It's just the wrong tools for the job. If you're trying to kill sin without a superior delight in God through Jesus Christ, you're not even in the operating room. Many of us, when fighting sin, the the problem is that ultimately there's nothing really that we want more than our sin. And so we try to force ourselves not to sin and to deter ourselves from what we really want, but we don't have anything to replace that with. And what the Bible gives here is that what pleases God and the way that we fight sin, the way we do righteousness or fight sin is through pleasure, delight, faith in Christ himself. That Christ is the superior delight and joy and that pursuing him makes us leave all the sins behind. And the point is this, the only way we can please God, either in doing his will or in turning from things that we don't want to do, that he does not want us to do, is out of trust and hope and delight in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, who alone has eternal life, who alone has pleased you and brought you delight, and we desire to approach you through him. Help us redefine what it means to be a mature believer, that it is always and ever increasingly so from faith for faith. Thank you for this time that we have been able to gather. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.